Hey guys, it's JP. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you're a church leader, I want to make you aware of a conference we're doing here in Dallas at Watermark. We are constantly being asked, how do you reach young adults? How do you reach millennials? We don't have it all figured out. We have paid some dummy tax throughout the past 12 years that we would love to share with you. And so we are having a conference. It's here in Dallas, October 24th through the 25th. You can find out more information on that at theporch.live, theporch.live. It is a conference on reaching millennials or reaching young adults. We hope you will join us. Dallas, how we doing? Hello, Dallas. Hello to Fort Worth and everybody else streaming online. My name is Adam Tarno. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. That's awesome. My mom and family are up there. Um, so anyway, I am excited to be here to continue the First Come, Comes Love series with you guys tonight. And tonight, I'm just going to jump right into what our subject is because we got this whiteboard here. And so tonight is going to be a little bit of sex ed, all right? So that's what we're gonna do tonight. And so I know some of y'all are nervous because you're like, he's got a pen, there's a lot of white space. (laughs) There are gonna be some drawings, but they're all tame, okay? So uh, anyway, where I wanna start off tonight is, uh, my story is probably very similar to your story when it came to sex ed. Uh, If I look at it, I really had a lot of education growing up, but it was all a miseducation. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of give you guys a little glimpse into my life and go through kind of the miseducation and the re-education of Adam Tarno when it came to sex. And so let's start off with some of the miseducation. The miseducation for me started when I was seven years old with an incident that I will call the snowman incident. All right. You might have had a snowman incident. I practice these drawings, by the way, so... There we go. So there's the snowman incident. So the snowman incident happened when I was seven years old and it was snowing. That's why there was a snowman. It was snowing at my house where I was. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the uh, Washington DC area. And so it had snowed and I went outside to go play in the snow and my next door neighbor had a snowman in their front yard. And on that snowman, there were two older neighbor kids that were on that snowman tearing it down. They were destroying it. And so the seven-year-old Adam got pretty excited watching these older kids tear this snowman down. And so I decided to go next door and to watch them as they tore this snowman down. And as they were tearing down the snowman, they kept saying this word over and over and over again that I had never heard before. My little first grade seven-year-old mind had never, or ears had never heard this word. And this was the F word, all right? So they kept, I'm not gonna write the whole word. I'm just gonna say F word. Honestly, I was about to write it. I really was. So that is the spirit of God at work right now in me to hold me back from all that. So anyway, seven years old, I I am hearing this word and I'm asking these guys, I'm like, hey, what is that word you're saying? And they're like, which word? And I'm like, that one, the F word that you keep saying over and over and over again and probably all the wrong context, you know, using it as an adverb and an adjective and a noun and all that kind of stuff. And so they, in the most crass way humanly possible, described to me what the F word really meant. They talked about body parts and uh, this is where babies came from. I mean, they gave me the complete education at seven years old. And at the end of that conversation, I'll never forget, they said, if you don't believe us, go ask your dad. And so I just filed that, you know, and so that may be some information that is gonna be helpful. Well, fast forward two hours, all right? So um, I'm now in my house. We had just finished eating 
and we're getting the bedtime routine is getting ready to start. My mom is now in the bathroom giving my baby sister a bath. My dad happened to be in the bathroom at the same time talking to my mom about something. And so I remembered this word and that I should ask my dad. And so I walked right into that bathroom and I just said, dad, what's F mean? And my mom screamed and she's like covered my baby sister's ears. Uh, My dad picked me up and like took me out into uh, his office and we sat down and he said, well, what do you think it means? And I used all those crass words over again. And he said, yes, that is a somewhat accurate description of what that word means and help me say it in a little better way. And so from seven years old, I was, my little mind was now exposed because of the snowman incident into this world of sex. And I learned the F word. So now fast forward a couple of years. So now I'm about 10 years old. I'm about 10 years old and my dad decides to give me a book. And I'll never forget the title of this book. I was, 10, I was 10 years old. It was right. I think I was in fifth grade. And my dad comes up to me one day and he goes, here's a book that you're going to need. There's some information in here that's going to be helpful for you. And I'll never forget the book. It was called What's Happening to My Body, A Book for Boys. <laughs> now, I'm a little bit of a late bloomer, okay? And uh, my kids still, my two boys now, still make fun of my lack of ability to really grow a beard or anything like that. So I promise you, at 10 years old, there was nothing, nothing at all happening to my body, okay? So this was literally just a book for boys for me. And so I remember being handed this book and he just telling me, hey, there's some information here you're gonna need. And so I go into my bedroom and I open up the book and I'm like, I see these drawings of different stages of puberty and a husband and wife engaged in some sexual activity. And I'm like, I do not know what this book is. I don't even think I read all of it. I do remember at one point going to ask my dad one question of like, what does this word mean? And it was the word circumcision. And so we had a conversation about that. And so I had this book and it was what's happening to my body, a book for boys. So there, so, so I, I knew what this sexual activity was. I knew some, now had some mental pictures in my mind, some drawings of what sex meant, but that wasn't the, the end of my miseducation. The end of my miseducation happened when I was about 12 years old and it happened when I was hanging out with some friends. And so at 12 years old was still a time here in America where Uh, Netflix wasn't around, DVDs weren't around. And so if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to a video store. And so some of your parents maybe have talked to you about a video store, but basically uh, a video store is where you went and that's where you rented videos and then you went home and then you had to take the videos back. And so this one video store in the neighborhood or in the, the town where I was growing up in, my buddies and I would get on our bike, we'd drive up to this video store one day And we knew this video store had an adult section and it was so seedy. It was like back in the corner. There was this dark uh, curtain that would cover up the section and people would sneak in there. And the way this video store worked is out on the floor where all the movies that you could rent, it was just the cover of the movie. You would take the cover up to the counter and you'd say, I want to rent this movie. This is E.T. or Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever it is. And then they would go back behind the counter on the shelves and they would take the movie off and they would hand it to you. And that's how you rented it. Well, one of my friends figured out that all of those adult movies that were back there behind that curtain, where they were stored on the shelves was actually right by the front door. And so he decided one day, he said, hey, let's go up there, let's steal one of those movies. I'll hop over the counter, I'll grab it and we'll run out. And as 12 year olds, we said, that sounds like fun. So we rode our bikes up there and my friend went over there, he pulled that movie off the shelf, we jumped off 
or he jumped over the counter, we got on our bikes and we went home. His parents were not home and we plopped in that, that movie and I saw for the first time my first pornographic movie at the age of 12. So I was 12 years old when that happened. So I had heard about it when I was seven. I had seen pictures of it when I was 10 and now two years later at 12, all of it came together and for the very first time I saw how all of this was supposed to work. So from the age of 12 up until the age of 21, my goal when it came to this new information that I had found, my goal was basically to consume as much pornography as I possibly could and to try to engage in, in, much, in as much activity that I saw on those movies as I could. And unfortunately, I had some success. I was able to consume a lot of pornography from the ages of 12 until about age 21. And unfortunately, I was able to engage in some inappropriate relationships with other girls. And I just thought this was normal. This is what all my friends were doing. And my parents really, you know, we weren't having too many conversations about it. And I just thought, hey, I have a sex education and now I'm using that education. And then it all kind of came to an end. And it came to an end very dramatically. And the miseducation now ended when I was 21 and it ended when I met this guy and I'll call and his name is, is John and I was 21 years old. I was in college at the time and I had uh, just become a Christian. A guy in my fraternity had shared with me about this Jesus that Shane had just gotten done talking about and I had come to understand that I was a sinner in need of a savior and that savior was Jesus Christ and God in his grace and in his mercy he opened my eyes right before my 21st birthday to see that I needed that Savior, Jesus, and I placed my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. A lot of things started to change immediately when I came to know Jesus, and one of the things that started to change is I no longer had this goal of trying to seek out inappropriate relationships with females, and the only reason that that changed immediately is because my view of the Bible, what I learned during my, my miseducation is my view of the Bible is that God did not want us to have sex. My view of the Bible at that time was, hey, don't do a bunch of stuff if you want to get to heaven. And so even though I understood just these, uh, these early understandings of grace, I still had this wrong view of God that he didn't want me to do stuff that was fun, that he was this killjoy in the sky. And so I still believed that, hey, God doesn't want me to have sex. And so therefore I'm not going to have sex. But I meet this guy named John. He starts to disciple me, meaning he starts to spend time with me. He starts to teach me the Bible. And John starts to really challenge my view of God. And he's like, Adam, he's not just this God that is up there trying to hold you back and, and say, hey, don't do all this kind of fun stuff. He's not trying to rip you off. He's trying to set you free. He's got views of life and he's got this preferred future for you. And he's got these, these ways that he wants you to walk in. And it's not because he doesn't want you to have fun. He wants you to walk in these ways because he loves you and because he knows what is best for you. And so for a few years there in college, I got to spend time with John. And John was the first adult man that I had ever talked to that we had this really frank and healthy conversation about sex. And he started to tell me about God's view of sex. And he was saying things that I had never heard before. That sex was designed by God, that it was created by God, that it wasn't dirty, that it was something that was reserved for married couples, all this kind of stuff. It was all brand new based on the miseducation that I had. And so then by the grace of God from about age 22 until about the age 27, I had this great opportunity to be involved in the church. So all the things that John had told me as he opened up God's word and he explained to me this heart of, of 
God and how much he loved us, I then got to sit in all these great churches that were continuing to faithfully open up God's word and teach. And oftentimes they taught about this view, God's view of of human sexuality. And it was completely different than anything I had ever heard before. And then when I was 28 years old, I had By this time, I had gotten into a relationship with a young lady named Jackie, and when I was 28 years old, we got to take a class here at Watermark, and the class was called Merge, and that's the logo. (laughs) Don't tell Scott, all right? And so we were seriously dating. We were about ready to get engaged, and we wanted to take this pre-married class, and in that class, we heard about a whole bunch of subjects, and one of the subjects we talked about was physical intimacy, and we talked about, from a biblical perspective, sex, and I was learning for the very first time that sex isn't just this physical act that a husband and wife do or that two people do. It's not just body parts that are touching. That this is deeply emotional, it's even spiritual. It's largely dependent on the quality of a relationship. And so all of this happened by the time that I was 28, and by the grace of God, By the time I got married, I not only went through a miseducation, by the grace of God, I was able to go through a re-education of a completely, totally different view of sex, a biblical view of sex. And I start with all that tonight because that's what I wanna do tonight. I wanna try tonight for us to uh, re-educate ourselves on this subject that has been so distorted. It has been, there's so many lies out there in the culture and that so many of us probably have stories very similar to mine. You may not have it, uh, you know, have it go out the exact same way, but I bet a lot of you would go, hey, that's my, that's my story too. I have had a miseducation, and by the grace of God, I'm experiencing a re-education. And so tonight, I hope, is a part of that process for all of us as we're re-educating our minds and trying to view this really sensitive and important subject from God's perspective. And so hopefully that's what we're going to be able to do. And the reason that I start with all this or one of the things that I want to say why this is so important is that as I went through both of these educations, here's what's crazy. I can stand up here with complete and total confidence and tell you the church has the best information on sex. The best. And there's one person really excited about that. I hope there's gonna be a lot of you clapping by the end of this and I can convince you that the church has the best information on sex. I've been through, I've listened to what my friends told me. I've listened to what books have told me and what what the culture through movies would try to tell me. And I would tell you this, is that what the church teaches about sex, what God's word says about sex, is without a doubt the most helpful, the most refreshing, and the best information that is out there. And I know for some of you, that sounds like crazy talk. But it makes complete and total sense because sex is not the world's idea. It's God's idea. And so it makes complete and total sense that God would have the best information about all this. And so what we're gonna do as we go through this re-education is we're gonna try to look at two things, really. We're gonna just look at some of the basics. We can't cover all of it, but we're gonna look at some of the basics on what the biblical overview is on sex. And then we're gonna come down here second, and we're gonna look at some common misunderstandings that are out there. because we've all got them, and so we're gonna look at at three common misunderstandings that are out there. So let's go through the basics here first. Here are some of the basics from a biblical perspective on sex. The very first thing that we need to know is that it was that sex was created by God. If you've got your Bibles, look at this in Genesis chapter one, verse 28. Here's what it says. 
It said, God blessed them. He's talking to Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so here it is, 28 verses into this book, okay? 28 verses into this book. I don't know about you, but my guess is every single Bible, if you open it up on the very first page, the very first page we see that God created sex. He created it. He wanted Adam and Eve, the first couple, to be fruitful and to multiply, to increase in number, to fill the earth with babies. And so you've got to be sitting in there. And if you came in here and you've never heard about the Bible before, or you've never read the Bible, or you're just into this Jesus thing now, like this has got to be really good news to you or very intriguing news. I mean, I know there's some of you guys out there that are sitting there going, really? First page, like, you know, you're putting on your to-do list, read more Bible right now, okay? (laughs) It reminds me of uh, when I first came on staff here at Watermark Dallas about seven years ago, I spent about a year leading our foundation group ministry. And the foundation group ministry is a small group for newly married couples. And uh, it's a great ministry and, and it was a lot of fun to lead it. And part of the foundation group ministry, what you do is you read through four books. And at the time when I was leading it, the books kind of changed, but they're all basically on the same subjects. And so it's kind of a biblical view of marriage is one book. You read a book or go through a resource on how to steward your finances. You read a book on communication and then you read a book on sex. And so every time we would give those books to the, to the married couples, uh, to the newly married couples, it was amazing. There'd be a stack of books there. And the sex book was always the last book that you were to go through uh, after you'd been in the group about a month because it's a sensitive topic. And so you'd never really start with that book. You just go, all right, read these in order. And then the last book you'll go through is the sex book. And what I knew every time is that when those guys, those, those husbands, they got those books, they would drive home and they would immediately just kind of look at their wife and just go, I'm feeling like reading right now. And they would start with that sex book every single time. They were so intrigued by the sex book and by like three weeks into the foundation group, they had already read the sex book because they were so intrigued by this topic. And, and it, was, it was basically what we see here in Genesis 128 is that they, they were just in, like, God is into this. He created all of this. And so that, that means that it's not dirty. That means that it's good that it is something that has been created by God. And so we see here in Genesis 1, 28, all right? Now let's keep going. The second thing that we'll see here is that not only did God create sex, but God also commands married couples to have sex. So this is seen in 1 Corinthians 7. So look at this, 1 Corinthians 7, verses two and three, and then we'll skip down and read verse five. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the first thing we see is that God created sex, and so it's good, it's not dirty, it's a good thing. The second thing that we see is that God commands married couples to have sex. And this is really fascinating to think about. One of the reasons that he wants a married couple to engage in sexual activity is so that they can devote themselves to prayer, so that their minds will not be distracted, 
so that they can focus on praying. And so this good thing that God created, this good thing that he designed, he commands married couples, he commands them to be able to engage in this so that they can focus on their relationship with God so that they can pray to him. The third thing we see here is that God deeply cares. He cares about sex. And he cares about sex in the right context. And so let's look here at Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. One of my favorite verses about all of it because there's just so much in these few words to describe this biblical and godly view of sex. Here's what he says. Marriage should be honored by all. It should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all of the sexually immoral. And so he wants this activity to be honored by all and he wants this activity to be reserved for marriage. And so the bottom line that we see here, if we look at all of these and then specifically what we see here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse four is this, is that, that sex is a gift from God reserved for a married couple. Sex is a gift from God that is given to and reserved for a married couple. And so it, it, what we need to understand is it's not dirty. It's not something that he tells you not to do. It is a gift that he has given in the right context, and that is in the context of marriage. And so this idea of marriage or, or sex being a gift from God, I mean, this is something that I have got to remind myself over and over and over again. This is something that Jackie and I, the way that we're trying to communicate this to our boys, so I've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old and we had the conversation with them before they started school last year of just wanting to be the first ones to describe sex to them so that they wouldn't have a snowman incident. So I'll never forget that night that we were having the conversation with them at dinner and it was one of my favorite moments just because of the comedy that ensued as we were having that conversation with them and asking them, hey, have you ever heard of what sex is? And they kind of look at us and they're like, no, I don't know what that is. What is that? And the very first thing we told them, what we wanted them to know is that sex is a gift from God that is reserved for a married couple. And so they were like, all right, well, what is this gift for? And we talked about, oh, this is where babies come from. And at that point, the kindergartner was just kind of like looking around, like where are babies coming from? And how does that happen? And, you know, we're using this language. We're not talking about pleasure. We're just talking about the physical act with them, just trying to give them some vocabulary, something deep inside dad goes deep inside mom and the, the seed from inside dad matches with a seed inside mom and then a baby is born and the baby comes out. And at that point, I mean, the kindergartner is just like, can we please talk about something else right now? And the first grader at that point or the second grader at that point was just very intrigued by all of this and just kind of grossed out at the same time. And so we have to remind them, we've had multiple conversations with them about this. I mean, even as early as this Sunday, this Sunday, I went on a walk with my now third grader and he was talking about something and a song that he heard that mentioned, maybe mentioned sex. And he talked about how sex was bad. And I was just corrected him again to say, whoa, 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 whoa. remember sex isn't bad. Remember what we say, sex is a gift from God reserved for married couples. If you're married, then sex is good. And what I love about this verse is that we're seeing the flip side of that that, that, that context matters. Context matters when it comes to whether or not God views sex positively or negatively. In the context of marriage, then sex is something that is to be richly enjoyed. But when you get out of the context of marriage, sex is something that scripture is incredibly clear is deeply troubling. And you see it right here in this verse. So the marriage bed should be honored by all, the marriage bed kept pure. So that's in the right context of marriage, it should be richly enjoyed. 
But then God is going to judge, and then we see two words here to describe sexual activity that takes place outside of the context of marriage. God is going to judge the adulterer. And an adulterer is somebody who has sex with somebody who is not their spouse. You have sex with another married person that is not your spouse. That's what an adulterer is. And that is viewed negatively here. And all the sexually immoral. And so sexual immorality, if you go and you read through the New Testament, that's one of the words that is used over and over again, and usually in a negative connotation to describe sex. What the author of Hebrews here is using, and and Paul uses it, and again, it's all throughout the New Testament, when you run across the word sexual immorality or the sexually immoral, what that is in, in the original language, in the Greek language, when the New Testament was written, that is the Greek word porneia. And that is where we get the English word pornography from. In your Bibles, it is translated sexual immorality. Sexual immorality or porneia, what it is, it's this kind of this junk drawer of a word that describes any and all sexual activity that takes place outside of the context of marriage. All of that is sexual immorality. It's all porneia. So this would be sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, oral sex, casual sex, masturbation, friends with benefits, pornography, raunchy films, strip clubs, all of that is porneia. It's all a cheap imitation of something that God designed and a gift that he gave for married couples. It's not the real deal, a cheap imitation. It's like turkey bacon. Like, who cares, right? Like, what's that worth? It's all porneia. In the context of marriage, in the context of marriage, sex is good. It's to be richly enjoyed. When you take it out of marriage, it can be deeply troubling. And so basically, the basics, what we need to know is we need to know this, is that you can trust, you can trust the designer. You can trust the designer. And you know what? We all know this is true. We get this. We experience things like this all the time. I mean, if you ever buy an appliance from Home Depot or from Lowe's or you ever go buy a big piece of electronic equipment or something from Best Buy, you know, every time you go buy something from Home Depot or Lowe's or from Best Buy and you get it home and you open it up, there are always instructions in that box telling you exactly how to use that dishwasher, how to use that refrigerator, how to use that DVD player, how to use that iPhone, or how to use any of those things. And the reason why the instructions are in that box and they don't come from Best Buy and they don't come from Lowe's and they don't come from Home Depot is because those stores know that the designers of those products know the best information about those products. And so Home Depot doesn't want you calling them if you can't install the dishwasher. They want you calling the manufacturer because the designer knows best how to install that and knows best how to work it. And the exact same thing is true for us with sex. We can trust the designer. It's his idea. It's God's idea. So we can trust him. He's not trying to rip us off. He's trying to set us free. He knows the best way that this gift was intended to be used. And so the summary of the basics is this, is that we can trust the designer. Now let's go and move on to the second movement here in the second act of all of this. And now let's start to think about some of the misunderstandings 
that are out there. Because there were a lot of misunderstandings that I had about sex as I went through my miseducation that I had to relearn or unlearn as I went through the re-education. So again, we could be up here all night and talk about 20 or 30 misunderstandings and we just don't have time to do that. So let's just talk about three of them. And the first one that I wanna talk about is this idea that's out there that practice makes perfect. This idea that practice makes perfect is a misunderstanding. It is just not true. Now, I understand why many of us would think that practice makes perfect because we are concerned about this thing that we like to call sexual compatibility. Sexual compatibility. That's one of the things that maybe some of you that are not married that you're worried about is, hey, if I get married and I'm gonna be monogamous and I'm gonna have a sexual relationship with just one person, I wanna make sure that I'm compatible with that person. So therefore, I should probably practice or I should try before I buy here. And so I understand the reasoning behind all of that, but let me just remind you of something that I know you've heard from this stage multiple times. When it comes to sexual compatibility, you do not have to worry. If you are a man and you marry a woman, you are compatible sexually, okay? You're not just gonna be sexually compatible with one person. You are sexually compatible with millions of people, okay? So you do not have to worry about sexual compatibility and use that as an excuse to engage in sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. And so sexual compatibility, though, I think what, what a lot of us don't understand about sexual compatibility is that it doesn't have nearly as much to do with uh, physical the physical side of the relationship as it has to do with the uh, relational or the emotional side of the relationship. And so compatibility is mostly relational. It's not mostly physical. And so I wanna prove this to you guys with some numbers, okay? So uh, before I became a pastor and came on staff at, at, uh, here at Watermark, I was a CPA for 10 years, and so I love numbers. And so I was sitting there thinking about this one day, and I just had this, this thought and the thought was this, is how much time does the average married couple spend engaged in sex? Okay, like how much time? Because I know I had what my eighth grade dream was uh, of how much time a married couple would spend engaged in sex. And I was just sitting there going, all right, like how much time is it really? Like, let's put some numbers down on the paper and let's look at it. So we were, we were checking out some stats today about how many times the average married couple has sex. And so let's just for argument's sake today, let's say that the average couple engages in sexual activity six times a month, okay? Let's just say for argument's sake, six times a month. And let's say with those six times that every time the, the couple engages, let's say the entire process lasts 30 minutes, okay? Now, and when I say entire process, I mean like from brushing your teeth all the way to getting dressed again and going back and turning on the television, okay? Like the entire process lasting 30 minutes. So six times a month, six times a month, and if it's 30 minutes a time, uh, each time, that is 180 minutes a month, okay? Now, multiply that by 12 over a year, and what that comes out to is that comes out to 2,160 minutes a year. Average married couple would spend engaged in sex, okay? Anybody know off the top of their head how many minutes there are in a, in a year? Glad you asked. 525,600 minutes, okay? You don't have to be a numbers person to know you are not gonna like the answer to this, okay? 
So let's take this. Let's do the math. All right. If the average married couple spends 2,160 minutes a year engaged in sex, and there are 525,000, 525,600 minutes in a year, what that means is this. That means that the average married couple spends 0.41% of their year having sex. Now, let's just be generous because you guys are going to be different, right? Let's just round that up. You all are going to be different. Let's just round it up to 1%, okay? I'm giving you twice as much sex as the average, okay? So let's just imagine you're going to have 1%. So if you are, if you can double the average, if you can double the average, you will spend as a married couple 1% of your year engaged in sexual activity. Let me show you another number. That means you will spend 99% of your life not having sex, okay? Emphasis on not, all right? So here, here's what this means. Here's what this means. This means that sexual compatibility has a whole lot more to do with the 99% than it does with the 1% because it's relational. It's not merely physical. And what's crazy for me, and, and you guys will, can identify this, those of you that are not married, is that average dating couples, as a dating couple, it seems like you spend 99% of your time trying to avoid something that you will spend 1% of your time doing as a married couple. This is an, an incredibly important 1% of a relationship, but you better believe that that 1% is directly impacted by the quality of the 99%. Compatibility is not just a physical thing. Compatibility is a relational thing. And if you wanna be able to be compatible, then you better be focused on the 99%. So this idea that practice makes perfect really is not true at all. But well, let, me, let me qualify that a little bit. There is, there is one group where practice does make perfect, and that is when you get married. When you get married, practice does make perfect. And I got another kind of discouraging statistic for you. It's this, is that when uh, researchers, marriage researchers, when they poll married couples and try to figure out which married couple, which age group is the most sexually satisfied, the studies consistently show that the most sexually satisfied couples are in their 50s and 60s. That's your parents' age, Okay. So I'll just let you throw up in your mouth for a second. <laughs> Let's get over all that. Makes total sense to me though. Makes total sense to me because they're focused on the 99%. And you grow and you, and, and you, uh, you continue to make progress in that. You don't bless your spouse with practice. You bless your spouse with purity. Because when you're pure, when you're pure, when you're avoiding sexual activity, you know what you're focused on? The relationship. The relationship. And when you're focusing on the relationship, you know what you're really focusing on? What's eventually gonna possibly help is that's gonna help with compatibility. So the first misunderstanding that's out there for many of us is this idea that practice makes perfect. And what I want us to see as we're re-educating ourselves is that practice does not make perfect. Purity is what we are to do. The second one is this. 
Second misconception that's out there is that if we wait, this idea, if we wait, then sex will be great. And some of you, maybe if you grew up in the church, you've heard this or you've believed this. Maybe this is what your youth pastor told you or your parents told you to try to convince you to remain pure, to remain a virgin. This idea that, hey, when you get married, if you're a virgin, when you get married, then sex is going to be great. And I just wanna kind of bust that myth here to let you know this, that if you, uh, if you wait, that is not a guarantee that sex will be great. The worst year of sex for just about every married couple, the worst year of sex is the first year of sex. And it makes total sense because if you're a virgin, when you get married, then that makes sense that that first year of sex is going to be uh, a little uh, awkward and unusual. And you got, you know, all this uh, vulnerability that you've got to work through and how to communicate about this. And so that makes sense that it's going to be work. But what's interesting is even if you've had sex before, that first year of sex is the worst year of sex. And the reason why is because just because you've had sex before you got married does not mean that you know what you're doing. Because if you've had sex before you've gotten married, you've been messing around with the cheap alternative. If you think just because you've had sex before you get married that that area of your life is gonna be perfect, that, that line of thinking is just as crazy as if my two boys, when they turned 16, if they were gonna come up to me and go, you know what, dad? We don't have to take driver's ed. We think we know how to drive. And I'd be like, really? Why don't you think you need to take driver's ed? How do you know how to drive? They go, we got it. We know how to drive. We totally crush Mario Kart. All right? We totally crush Mario Kart. We finished in first and second place every time. We know how to drive. And so now I don't need to take driver's education. I just need to go take the test because I'm a good driver. That's crazy talk. Mario Kart is a cheap imitation of the real thing. And if they think they know how to drive just because they can play Mario Kart, they're gonna be sorely mistaken when they get behind, get behind the wheel of a real car. And just because you've been messing around with a cheap imitation of the real thing does not mean you know, you know what this thing is that God intended. If you wait, it doesn't necessarily mean that sex will be great. I think, I think if you wait, you're gonna be happy that you did. I think there's gonna be a lot less baggage that you're gonna be dealing with. I think there's gonna be a lot less guilt and a lot less shame, but don't wait. Don't wait just to put God on the line because maybe he owes you a good sex life. Wait, wait as an act of trust and obedience and worship. Wait because you believe that God is good and that he is for you and he's not trying to rip you off. Don't wait because you think he's gonna owe you something. Wait for the right reason. And the last misconception that's out there is just this idea that marriage is gonna satisfy. That marriage is gonna satisfy your sexual desires. And unfortunately, that's not true either. And again, that line of thinking makes sense that, hey, I've got all these sexual desires right now. I've got this lust that I'm struggling with. I've got... Uh, all these hormones that are going crazy right now. And the reason that I'm uh, struggling with these desires is because I don't have a sexual outlet. Therefore, if when I'm married and I do have a sexual outlet, then those desires will go down and I'm not gonna struggle that much anymore. It makes total sense, that, that line of thinking, but I'm just telling you, it's not true. And the reason it's not true is because your sexual desires, that sex drive that's there, that lust, it's not a physical issue. It's a heart issue. 
And heart issues are not fixed by marriage. Heart issues are not addressed by marriage. Heart issues are fixed and addressed by Jesus. And so what we do right now, what we do right now while we're struggling is we believe what Paul said in the first Thessalonians chapter four, verses three and five. Look at this. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. If you can't control those desires and those urges and those lusts right now, then if you get married, you're gonna have trouble controlling them then too. Now is the time. Now is the time to start battling those urges. Now is the time to start battling those desires. Now is the time to work on your heart. And I am so grateful that God gave me these these years up here. And I'm so grateful for this season when I was dating Jackie and, and trying to battle these desires and learning God's heart for sexuality and learning that he doesn't just say no. He's saying, hey, I want this to be done in the right context. I'm so grateful for those years when I was able to learn how to battle these desires and learn that these desires are not the ultimate in life. Because those are, those are uh, tactics and those are skills that I have, to, have had to use every single, just about every single day since I've been married. And so you learn to battle that stuff now. It makes me think about this. When my wife and I, when we first got married, one of our hobbies, because we had no kids and no pets, is that we ran marathons. And so we would train for marathons. And I remember uh, the very first time we were training for a marathon, I thought that training for a marathon would make the running of the marathon easier. And it doesn't. The training for a marathon doesn't make the running of a marathon easier. When you train for a marathon, it is still really, really difficult to run 26.2 miles in a row. The training for the marathon didn't make the marathon running easier. The training for the marathon got you more mentally prepared for the running of the race. You knew what it was like to feel or you knew how it felt when you were starting to run low on fuel. You knew how it felt when you needed to take a break a break and walk. You knew how it felt when mentally you were starting to get discouraged. And so you had trained for those moments so that when you faced them, you had all the skills you needed to be able to battle those. And this idea that marriage is going to satisfy all of those urges is just false. Now, this is, this is when you start to work on it. So these misunderstandings really can be summarized this way, that it's not about practice makes perfect. It's not about wait, and that's gonna make sex life great. And it's not that, hey, I'm just waiting until I get married and then all these urges and desires are gonna go away. The way that we could summarize the right way to look at this is to pursue purity. That's what this season is for. So I don't know what your miseducation looked like or what re-education you need. I don't know if you had similar instances like I did or you're in the middle of going through your re-education right now, but for every single one of us, what we need to do is we need to be able to trust the designer and understand that marriage is a gift from God, or excuse me, sex is a gift from God reserved for married people, and we can pursue purity in this time right now when we are not married. And so I'll close with this last story. This last weekend, my family and I, we went camping with our community group. There were five couples and 17 kids. We went over to Mineral Wells State Park and uh, I'm not a camping guy. I'm not an outdoor guy. 
so there's a lot of things that I do not like about camping. I've never been able to sleep in a tent. My wife and I realized this, this weekend, after another sleepless night in our tent, that we have spent uh, many more hours awake inside of our tent than we have asleep inside of our tent. And so uh, camping is very difficult for me because I get tired and I'm not sleeping well. Uh, it's dirty. Um, it's hot. There are bugs all over the place. I noticed this weekend that I just kind of give up on life when I'm camping. <laughs> I don't change my clothes. I don't brush my teeth. I like, I don't comb my hair. I'm just like, what does it matter? We're out here in the wild right now. I'm going to get dirty again. My wife, like before she went to bed, she's like, I'm going to go wash my face and brush my teeth. And I'm like, why? What does it matter? And I just, I just give up on life when we're there. I just, I don't like camping and that's a whole nother issue. But there is one part of camping that I really do like that is my favorite. One of my favorite things to do in life. And that's at night after the 17 kids go to bed and all the adults are around. What I love doing is I love getting around the campfire. There's just something mesmerizing about it. So you sit around the campfire and it's amazing. You got the fire there and it's just interesting to watch and you can cook, make the s'mores and just seems like around a campfire, there's, you're never short of conversation. It's always something to say. The conversation is great. The warmth is there. It brings people together and it's just, it's just an awesome experience. And so as I was looking at our campfire this weekend, the thought just kind of dawned on me that right now this campfire is contained these stones all around here and that campfire is right there and we're all gathered around it and it's providing warmth and life for us and we're making these s'mores and we're having great conversation and we're all around it, it's great. But if that fire moved, if it moved just a few feet over to the right, if it went up just a little bit higher and caught that tree, you take that thing that is so contained right there in that fire pit and brings so much joy and so much life, if you take it and you move it out of its context, it could wreak just so much destruction so quickly. In fact, I don't know if you guys saw the headlines. This is what's going on out in California right now. Out in Sonoma and Napa Valley right now in that area, I wrote down some stats of what's going on there right now. These fires are going crazy out there right now. Right now they've consumed, as of about five o'clock today, they've consumed an area that's three times the size of Washington, D.C., this fire is moving at a rate where it's moving 300 yards in about three seconds. That's how fast it's moving. Over 20,000 homes have been destroyed. 15 people have lost their lives in this fire. It's amazing that fire is this thing that when it's in the right context, when it's in a fireplace or it's in a campfire, or it's in a fire pit, can provide so much life, so much joy, provide warmth and bring people together. But if you take it out of its context, it can cause destruction, it can cause damage, and it can ruin lives and leave scars. And the exact same thing is true about sex. In the right context, in marriage, it can be this beautiful thing that can draw people together, that can draw a husband and wife together, that can bring new life, something that, where you can enjoy this deep intimacy with one another. And it's amazing when it's in the right context of marriage. But when you take it out of the right context, when you take it out of marriage and it involves sexual immorality or it involves adultery, it's damage, just like fire. It destroys lives, 
It destroys uh, people's pasts and it leaves an unbelievable scar on so many of us. We can trust the designer and we can pursue purity. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the gift that you have given And God, we recognize that although sex is a great and an amazing gift that you have given to married couples, it is nowhere close to the ultimate gift. And that ultimate gift is the gift you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so I thank you, Lord. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we can be forgiven and that we can be redeemed. And I thank you, Lord. And because he has risen, that we now can pursue purity in this season that we can trust you in this season, that we can follow your path and we do not have to follow the ways of the world on this subject. So God, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray that they will reject the lies that they have heard. I pray for my friends that still need some more re-education, that you will bring people into their lives, that that your word will speak into their hearts and that it will help them as they are re-educated to have the right and proper view of this amazing gift that you've given to humanity. And so God, we thank you. We can come together and that we can talk about this and that your word guides us and instructs us. And so we need help and we ask for it and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.